Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from Asia Tech Podcast Stories, ATP Stories, and I am joined by Bernard Leong. Bernard is the founder of Analyze Asia, among other things, and hopefully we'll get to some of those other things today as well. Bernard, how are you? Michael, thank you for getting me on the show and uh, it's my pleasure the last time you've been you have been on my show too I know. it was a great conversation thank you very much um hopefully people listen to it a lot and people liked it a lot but i love doing it and this is the way we like to pay people back by having them on as well so i'm really glad to have you here mm. yep so shall we start <laughs> yeah let's go so founder of analyze asia do you want to talk about that a little bit but also talk a little bit about what led to that if you don't mind I mean, I think there's a little known secret, at least one of the things that we talked about when I was on your show was the SG entrepreneurs, right? I mean, I didn't know that you were actually part of the founding team there as well. And I think that's a big deal, right? Because that was really the one of the pioneering things that took place in the media space for the startup space in Southeast Asia, no? Mm. So I started off as in academia, and then subsequently uh, I drop out and decided to go into the business world. So I did two startups. So one of the startups, uh, which is called Chopbot, is a location-based advertising in its time. Uh, it raised some money from uh, Joey Ito in oh, the wow. Anthony Labs. Yeah. And that crash and burn because we were trying to be too expensive. We we're trying to go to the US market. We we're trying to hold the Singapore and Malaysia market. Yeah, that's hard. Uh, yeah, that was hard, and I learned a pretty tough lesson through that. The second startup that I did was when I was in academia together with Gwendolyn Tan and Wei Chang Lai, and probably with Isaac Tay and Terence Lee, who a lot of people now know in tech in Asia. Yep. So we founded uh, SG Entrepreneurs. It was actually a academia project because there was no uh, media site that actually covers entrepreneurs. So I set it up. I did most of the first three years with all the articles, interview with startup founders and then subsequently Gwen took it and she became the public face of it and I think in 2013 we sold it to Tech in Asia so that was part of the acquisition so Gwen and Terence moved to Tech in Asia and and the, the rest is history for that startup itself. Do you want to talk a little bit about why, like what year was SG Entrepreneurs founded and what was the idea there? I mean I know that, I know you already said that there was no sort of media that was focused on that at the time. But even back then, right, sites like TechCrunch weren't as maybe as prevalent as they are today globally. And I'm just wondering what you were thinking when you guys were doing that, particularly because you were all still at school, no? Yeah, I, I, I think it was really crazy on my part. So I, I decided that, well, since no one is going to cover startups in Singapore and I'm in academia and I was an assistant professor adjunct to the uh, National University of Singapore's Entrepreneurship Center. So I just started, right? Right. So I worked together with Gwen and Wei Chang, and then we started, you know, interviewing people. We started with blogger sites and then went to the WordPress site. So that, that particular uh, journey actually taught me a lot about media, taught me a lot about uh, journalism, taught me a lot about media, but it, it also ties a lot of my background. I know a lot of people know me as a scientist, but uh, what was not known to about it is I'm also a, th a theater producer. Tell and me. I'm actually produced I didn't know, I didn't know that. Tell me. Yeah. So uh, I, I studied uh, speech and drama when I was younger. So my drama teacher said, you're not meant for the front stage. So come and join me at the backstage. 
So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Movie. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, my my mother always said to me that I had a face for radio, and I wasn't sure if that was a compliment or not. But that's what she said. So I I take it as a compliment. I Fair think enough. she got it right. So <laughs> she brought me into the backstage. She, uh, I learned like sounds, and then subsequently I became a assistant producer back in Singapore. But when I went to Cambridge, I produced two plays. One of them was a Tom Stoppard play. Wow. And probably one regret I did was I was actually given the chance to do the Shakespeare Festival in the summer. Wow. And the choice of play. And and, and for people in theater, this is like... That's the that's know, the thing. That's the thing. And, and the worst part is I'm not Shakespeare trained. Yeah, but so, still, like Shakespeare, I mean, what would you... Like, if you had to do it over again, right, and you were going to run the Shakespeare Festival, which... One play? Well, yeah, just give me one. What would you do? I would do a Midsummer's Night Dream. That yeah, was the, fair enough. That was the that was the play that I proposed, and the reason why they wanted me to produce it was because I earned the reputation of producing a profitable play in Cambridge. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would I would have done Hamlet, but that's just a, a different thing. I mean, a Midsummer Night's Dream is awesome, right? Yeah, it's comedy. So you know, I I'm, I'm always optimistic, <laughs> and I want to do. But you know, theater is actually what brought me into podcasting, actually. Yeah, I mean, they're related, right? I mean, and actually, if you think about writing, you know, writing a play, producing a play, all that, the entire concept of production is actually very similar to a startup, right? You kind of know what the whole idea is, but boy, you need a team, you need to earn some stuff, you need to advertise, you need to promote, all that kind of stuff is kind of just like doing a startup, no? That's right. So as the producer, you're supposed to do the fundraising, you're supposed to do the marketing, other than that, you do the technical direction of the stage, and then you work with actors. Sometimes they can be prima donnas, you know, like stars. So you have to, you know, learn how to engage them. So I think a lot of those skills actually translate into the startups world, actually, for me. And I think that that theater experience actually gave me a lot of uh, how to actually manage and how to build things from scratch at a very quick and rapid phase. Can you just run through some of those lessons for me as well and just tell me how that fed into the start and the creation of Analyze Asia, which is quite mm-hmm. popular in its own right, yeah? Yeah, so actually, so coming back to Analyze Asia, so the story was a little bit more interesting than that. So somewhere during the time when I was still in SGE, I set up this little podcast called This Week in Asia with three other people. And one of them, his name is Daniel Cervantes in Malaysia. Michael Fong, John Lim, uh, one of them, uh, John Lim is a journalist, and Michael Fong was actually a very well-known podcast guy, and um, Smitty, who's now a VC from Seed Plus. Oh, that's Michael. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, we we started off with like, you know, this week in Asia, and then we would have this format bantering about, you know, tech in Southeast Asia, and then we talk about different things that happened that week. But the problem was that there were a few things that disturbed me. So one of them was quality. So if you have a four-people conversation on Skype, yeah, quality hard. degrades and it's hard to maintain. So the second part of it was that we all grow up, we all got married, we have family. So trying to coordinate a show with four people becomes much, much more difficult. So I think somewhere around when I was starting my jobs in the corporate world and I decided I wanted a side hustle, I, for some reason, got back into podcasting because I think I started podcasting since 2014. Sorry, 2004. Started listening to podcasts since 2004 when it first started. Yeah, you and me both. 
yeah, so so I decided that okay, I'm gonna do a podcast, and I was very inspired by Horace Didu's uh, "It's Simple: The Critical Path." Yeah, the critical and, path is really good. That's on the Dan Benjamin side, right? That's right. And and I think what was what I really liked about it, and I think that was one of the things I wanted to fill with Analyze Asia is why can't we do a podcast about analyzing Asia's top business. Giants, yep. for example, SoftBank, for example, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan. Foxconn, yeah, Meituan, uh, TSMC, for example, Foxconn, right? Yep. All these Honghai, yep. Uh, Honghai, that's right. Uh, Tata Group or Infosys in India. So I decided that, okay, I'm going to create a podcast that specifically focuses on Asia and also open it up a little bit to thought leaders in the US because. At that point, when I started the podcast, there were there were not many uh, podcasts in Asia at that point. So my I needed to create competition for myself. So I decided that the best way is to do is to focus on building a US audience for my podcast. Yeah, good so idea. I needed to get US speakers, and turns out that forty uh, percent of Analyze Asia's audience are actually from the US. Actually, in the end, yeah, it makes so sense, right? Was, yeah. Can I ask you a question? Did you ever wa- do you ever watch the Gilmore Gang? Gilmore Gang. The, re- the reason why I, I ask is the reason why I ask is because so Steve Gilmore, right, was one of the founders of TechCrunch with Michael Arrington, right? And right. you know, when TechCrunch was sold to AOL and all that stuff, anyway, Steve Gilmore does a podcast that he calls the Gilmore Gang, and by the word "gang," you can tell that there's almost always four people, sometimes five people. They do video as well. I don't know how they do this. I mean, I think they used um, Staycast or Stratocast. I can't remember what it is, but they do video with four or five people in it. It's pretty amazing. And I always wonder, how do they, you know, all the issues that you mentioned, how do they coordinate it properly? How do they keep the connections properly? It never seems to drop, right? It's really interesting what they do. And that I understand. That's really hard. Mm. And, and that was why I settled down for a one-on-one interview model for Analyze Asia. Yeah, good idea. And or if not, do it face to face. So I started with a few guests I know. Given that I ran SGE, I met up with all the honchos of the other tech websites yeah, yeah. in Asia. So I started to interview them first, and also interview some people from Japan, from China, and I built my audience. And I started also looking around. Uh, I built uh, talking to people from Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal. Um, and so I built up my reputation through that as well, uh, TechCrunch as well. And then subsequently, I, I started to be able to attract more and more interesting guests. And of course, through my own corporate day job, I get to know all the heads of the tech companies in Asia Pacific, which most of them are headquartered here. So essentially, when I do an interview with them, there's a lot of trust that we are not out for getting some, you know, quick, quick uh, shot of some breaking news. But it's really to understand how they operate in Asia. What are they doing in Asia as well? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting concept that you bring up, and that is there is a fear I think out there uh, for people to just talk on the record. And, you know, we do similar things. So I like to interview people one-on-one as well. That's what we're doing now. For me, it's more of a conversation. And I think you would probably make the same comment. But people are afraid before they sort of get on the phone with us that we're trying to catch them in something. Do you know what I mean? And it Mm -hmm. does take time to build up the gravitas and the credibility to where people, like you said, at the Financial Times or at Coca-Cola 
or you know at HTC will just get on the phone with you and feel comfortable enough to have a conversation because they've already listened to your body of work and they know that you really just want to educate people about what's happening in the region and not sort of catch somebody like you said in just the breaking news of today and you know try to just get quick hits and clickbait and stuff like that. I'm much more interested, I think, like you are in substantive conversations. Mm. And I think we can deeper dive into issues with audio as well, right? Sure, I think sure, sure. We talk about that in in the podcast as well. And you should you are able to um, learn about some of these nuances about things in Asia. I like it when some of my audience actually communicated their feedback with me. So I met a Danish broadcaster who actually listens to my podcast and he told me that um, the thing that he finds very different is that he can learn something that he didn't know about Asia. For example, he didn't know that most of the India startup unicorns are registered in Singapore, right. for example. Right. So so there's these little nuances, nuggets that I try to pick it up from different people and try to convey it to the audience that's listening out there. Uh, the way I like to tell people these days is I'm trying to bring the story of 4.4 billion people out to the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why we call this ATP stories, yeah, right? That's right. There's a yeah. reason for that. And and you're right. I like to say, you know, there's so much going on in this region and there are few platforms. Yours is one of them, right? So Analyze Asia is one of them, but there are few platforms for people to be able to get online and tell those stories. And I think we talked about this before as well. But the internet allows broadcasters to have sort of frictionless distribution. And I like your methodology for going out and getting U.S. guests, which then helps build the U.S. audience. Um, because most of your podcast listeners globally are going to be English-speaking people, right? So there's a massive Chinese market, which I can't enter because I don't speak Mandarin. But I think that the rest of the world is actually big enough for me to be able to communicate with them. And I can still tell stories about China as well, just like you mm. can, yeah? Mm, yeah, I think that's, that's the interesting part of it. And then through reading stories, sometimes I want to sort of get an understanding of something. Uh, so it's actually through Analyze Asia, I learned how to interview, I learned how to put questions together. And I think one of the best things it taught me is to actually learn how to listen to people. Mm. Which, which I which I actually is actually one of the things I was kind of my secondary motivation in creating this podcast. Yeah, I mean, how much do you think you've learned? How long have you been doing Analyze Asia? Probably three years. So three years. In those three years, you've probably gotten like a triple MBA and a double JD in so many different topics. No, I mean, how much do you think yeah. you've learned? I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of things that I don't know about. For example, we all know WeChat, right, as an app, yes. but we don't know about the in-depth ecosystem that it has in China. I don't know a lot about Foxconn, but through talking to Tim Kopan from Bloomberg, I get to understand, you know, what is the who are the key lieutenants, right? Uh, what are the subsidiaries that they have to actually manufacture phones that are not with Apple? Right. That other than Apple itself. So these these kind of stories are interesting because you hear only the the narrative in the Western media on on these companies in one direction. Usually right. it's about abuse, but you don't really talk about how how efficient they are. How do they able to convince a Chinese town to set up an entire factories there? How do they scale themselves? Right. Right. And this is another issue that I'd like to raise as well, and that is. There's a bias in media. I mean, I think all of us come into 
broadcasting and production with a bias. And as long as we know what that bias is, I think we're safe. But I do feel like sometimes after living in Asia for almost 30 years that I can see what the biases are in the Western media as it pertains, like you said, Foxconn is just one example mm-hmm. of how only one part of the story gets told. You know, the other part of the story is that, and this is only part of it, right, is that there are masses of people who are taken out of poverty by being able to work at a Foxconn factory, among other factories in China, and that changes the the lives of a generation of people. And like mm-hmm. you said, just their ability to go into towns convince them to build a factory there and have just incredible, you know, efficiencies and the ability to build products, you know, how many iPhones get built every minute or every hour. It's just amazing. And that story kind of gets glossed over from the, you know, people are being abused or whatever. But I, I want to be able to tell full stories as well, right? I want to be able to go in with my known biases and, and make sure that I tell multiple sides of the story. Yeah, and then that's the fun part about uh, doing Analyze Asia when you look at a, a particular topic and then you try to dissect into it and how to put that story for for everyone out there to see it in, in different lenses. Yeah, agreed. So mm. do you um do you invest also? Like can you talk about part some of the investments, not not the exact ones that you've made, but maybe you do have a view and maybe some of the things that you've learned by listening to people over the past three years and your experience with SG Entrepreneurs, SGE as well, mm-hmm. maybe what you've learned that kind of gives you a view on what the whole ecosystem is doing and, and where your investment interests lie as well. Mm. So I actually during the period when I was still working on the two startups, I did a small fund, uh, which is a five million fund called Timers Capital uh, with a few angels. Uh, that's actually in conjunction with the Media Development Authority, which is now merged into the Development uh, Authority of Singapore. Right. So um, my, my, I have an investment thesis. Uh, talk, just, just talk about the angel investment size, which I thought probably would be interesting. Please. I like to look at something that is more traditional a traditional industry, but it has a, a, a how digital is going to transform this particular industry. So I invested in a company called iHypo, which is about um, human resource management. It got acquired by Potential Park in Sweden, um, and then I looked. I, I did another company, which is actually uh, growing very well, uh, called uh, Eterect. But it was actually uh, the digital child of a. a it, Offline dating company called Lunch. Actually, they eventually merged it, and now I think the co- the company the company founders Violet and Jamie, who I I, I respect a lot, and I, I love to always help them. Uh, they have now coming to raise their uh, Series B. This so, is this is lunch lunch actually, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a uh, very interesting company. Was that started in Thailand as well, or was that merged with a uh, company from Thailand? Yeah, that was Nikki's Nikki's company. Yeah. yeah? That's right. It merged a company in Thailand. It started in Singapore as an offline site. Yep. But the founders are very digital. And one of the interesting things I always like to tell my uh, friends is that uh, the founders also like computer gaming like me. So there was a time that we actually go into playing a multiplayer StarCraft, but we were discussing work-related <laughs> stuff on, on the game. So I know it sounds funny, but... No, it's good. It's one of these, these few things that... It's really enjoyable working with them. And the other thing I like about them is that they have values. So I had this strange investment uh, uh, thesis about founders. So I know within 15 minutes 
whether I'm going to invest in this company. How though? Can you tell tell me about this? Because values is a really important thing to me, okay. and I think so, it's I think it's really important to angel investors in general. Actually, that's right. That's right. So I've done this ten thousand times. So I, I know I actually did a scorecard for myself. So I will talk to a founder, and within the fifteen minutes, there will be three things the founder will try to do. So he he or she will try to basically say, "Hey, this is particularly the problem that I'm I am looking at." Here is the counterintuitive thing about this problem. This is what conventional wisdom says, but this is what I believed. And then this is my solution to the problem. And whoever conveys this like within 15 minutes, I know that they are the right guys to do it. I'll, I'll give you one example who I think uh, Violet and Jamie basically convinced me within 15 minutes Tell me. of our interaction. Literally, they just told me this is what they want to do in dating. This is what offline dating is. And this is how the online will convert to the offline. Okay. And the counterintuitive is that online dating don't make money, but it provides a, a pipeline into the offline world, which they have that business and they know how the offline works. Okay, so but can you just tell me how that conversation really goes, though? In other words, when you met the founders of this offline dating business, did you know them before, or like how would you I, meet them? Because this is interesting to me yeah, from an angel right. investing standpoint. How do you source this stuff? How do you meet people? So what we did in Timers was we arranged these uh, coffee meetings on Saturday mornings, so for half an hour with every founder. So we did like about. Um, let's say from 8 to 12, about 8 meetings per every Saturday. And then outside, we source for deals. So you, you get to meet different people. Sure. And and in the and usually the way how we start the conversation is we, we have a fixed way of thinking that we want to understand the problem very quickly. So we ask them, so can you tell me the problem that you want to solve? And what what is it that you think differently from conventional wisdom and how the, how does it work? And it also helps because one of my partners, Zach, was a very established uh, venture capitalist um, who actually did uh, invest in Alibaba at the early stage. As a, he's a partner of a venture firm, and he he, he brings in a lot of um, a lot of uh, what I need to learn to be an investor. And 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 so the the thing the thing that makes it really interesting in that that. Um, aspect of it is that when I when I listen to somebody framing and then try to frame the solution and then frame why there are the people doing it it kind of convinced me within 15 minutes and I'll, yeah there are founders who, who do that who I kept a scorecard and, and I, I say and I told myself shit I didn't have money but if I had done I got it right so I actually kept this list and uh, I can tell you like Roslyn Koo CXA group she within 15 minutes I told in fact, I went back. I told my wife, you know, this lady is really good, and I can believe that she will make it. So, literally you, before before CXA became very big. So, yeah. do you still invest like this? In other words, or do you, are you still meeting founders? It's an interesting. It's an interesting thesis, right? In other words, it's sector agnostic, and I I agree with you. It's also vertical agnostic, which means you kind of don't care what it's in. I presume you're more interested in consumer internet type stuff is that fair yep. to say that's right that's right uh, I don't do that nowadays uh, because I started a family and uh, I I did I did some investments uh, mainly more for like for my wife's startup for example and uh, and basically I'm also investing in Analyze Asia as a startup itself 
So I put up some funds and I told myself, okay, this is the capital that you're going to have. You got to be disciplined with this, how much you spend per month, how right. do you, you, you know, you do all these things to, so I run it like a startup for Analyze Asia, actually. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but are you still talking to founders? In other words, I talk to yeah, founders I do, I do. every day, right? And one of the reasons why is to learn stuff. I, I do, and I uh, I'm more as a connector, so I will connect them to the VCs I know, the investors I know, uh, like yeah, and they a lot of people do come to me, but I also spend a lot more time with um, it's it's a, it's a side project that I do. Um, not I don't do a lot, but probably like two three a year, I try to help founders who failed to transition into the corporate world as a part of the. Of, of my social responsibility to the startup world. That's really interesting. And what is the take-up? And uh, the, the real question is this, is that entrepreneurship, right, is, it's like a calling in a way. And let me give you an example of what I mean, and you tell me if you agree or disagree, and then tell mm. me how this works for you, right? I have a friend, a very good friend of mine, who is an architect and an urban planner and designer. Mm. And he's very good at this, and he's actually quite famous. And I always tell people that he doesn't have a job because he just has a life. And that life surrounds him and it, it like engulfs him and that desire to sort of build things, he can't get away from it. In other words, he's not an architect by trade. He's an architect by life, right? Because, mm -hmm. and if you took away that, he wouldn't, I mean, he has other interests for sure, but that's his whole thing. And I think entrepreneurship is kind of the same way. You're just consumed by this idea of, building things and I wonder what it's like or how you find it when an entrepreneur that fails your words yeah how do they um, feel like when they go back into corporate life and what do you need to convince them to do that or is that something they've just decided actually what happened was when I failed a lot of uh, very uh, a lot of people within the co entrepreneur community reached out to me offered me jobs asking me whether I need help for an introduction. Right, right, And I, right. I appreciate that. Oh, it's so and good. It's so nice, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the nicest things I would ever – I felt I, I, it was the worst time of my life, but yeah. I was heartened by that. So what I decided to do was that um, one of the problems that I found and also a couple of VCs found is that there are a lot of what we call zombie startups yep. within the Singapore ecosystem, meaning that the founders are not actually getting anywhere. And the worst part was they started it when they were like in their twenties, and then by the time they reach thirties, they have they have got married, and then they need to settle into having kids. And the zombie startup is still draining their life. So one of the things I volunteered to do was to talk to them, um, help them to transition. And thankfully, because of my corporate day job, I encounter a lot of um, uh, chief information officers and chief digital officers who are looking for startup founders to join them. Kind of internally, kind of like yeah, internal startup yes. yeah? That's right, that's right. So what I would do is first I would work out with the founder how to shut down the company, how to make all the investors agree right. to the shutdown, and how to transition into the corporate part of it. Uh, I don't do a lot, but I, I felt that that, that that part of me with the, that gives me engaged with the startup world, and I find that it's actually good to have this startup talent reflux into the corporate world because what I usually tell them is that trust me in a few years time after a corporate day job you you'll find that you might want to go back into the startup world but this time you'll be more prepared yeah and you'll be more prepared in multiple ways right in the sense that that's right 
you may even have more resources at your disposal as well and better connectivity because you've been inside corporates and the corporates are maybe your end customers. There's just a lot of positive reasons why that could be beneficial to people, yeah? That's right. So so that 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 part of it I, I find it very enjoyable seeing some of these founders have transitioned into the corporate life as well. I, I know none of them have got back into entrepreneurship, but I think they are just waiting because I think you can take the man off being an entrepreneur, but you cannot take the entrepreneur off the man. Correct. That's the point I was making earlier is that if you're an entrepreneur, really, you just can't. I mean, look at you even. You said you have a day job, right? And you can talk about that if you'd like to. But in the background, you talked about a side hustle. But I, I'll say this from my experience is that Analyze Asia is not a side hustle per se. It's too big. It's too well-known. It's too famous for, you know what I mean? Like that's your entrepreneurial side and you're also involved with your wife's stuff and other things too. Like you can't get it away from you, yeah? Yeah, I I <laughs> did always say that I will go back to the startup world. And the reason why I got into the corporate world was because I needed to work out a few things. So I, I made it very clear that the next startup I'm going to do, I'm going to be the CEO of the company. So what I wanted to be sure is that I wanted to learn a few things. One of them is how to scale a company, how to un- manage a, a P&L properly, and how to scale across geographies. So in the jobs that I've taken so far, it allows me to give me perspectives in different pieces that I want to learn. So, so t- tell me what you've learned, because that's really interesting. All those things are really important for startups, but also for corporate too. Like, what have you learned? It's fascinating. Okay. To me. So when I was in Vistaprint, my job was a technology manager. But what I'm actually doing is a SWAT team for the group CEO who's far, far away. And basically, he has ideas together with the management team. And then he would just send me the ideas and say, go find me a four-man team, get it done, right. and show show me a prototype, So, which is what I did. That's but awesome. I also prepared a business case for them and then the transition into the business unit. But that gave me the first line of insight of what is a disruptor versus incumbent problem. Right. Yeah, and I think this is the biggest challenge for most corporates is that how, how could the incumbent not allow the disruptor given that they have so much revenue at stake? I mean, not now, because they're willing to take the revenue now and sacrificing the thing that's going to disrupt them. So that was something I see in firsthand there. What did you learn? I yeah. mean, that's a big problem, right, that a so, lot of big companies face. That's right. So one, one of the things that probably I did in my current job, which I took, is that I told my boss, if you don't give me the P&L, then the whole digital piece will not work out. So what happens was when I joined Singpost as the head of digital, if you look at a lot of head of digitals in Singapore-based companies or even Asian-based companies, they tend to be like a support IT function to the right, business right. itself. So once you have the PNL, you you are being forced to use digital to incrementally improve the company. That means using digital transformation to really change the revenue mix of the company in a very incremental way. And that worked out in the case of uh, where I work now, which is Singpost. Uh, I started off as the head of digital, and then I became the head of the post office network as well. Wow. And so, and um, probably I done some of my best work there. Uh, it was like the drone delivery that was uh, done in Pulaubin, the first secure authenticated drone delivery, and also the uh, omni-channel uh, 
SAM platform, which is actually a, a postal platform for people to buy postage labels, buy uh, do payments, remittances with Western Union that won two global um, uh, postal technology awards. One was the Post and Parcel Retail Access, which we won it for the second time in a year, uh, wow. in two years. Um, and then the other one was, I think, Post and Parcel Technology, where we won the Digital Innovation of the Year. So we took a, a traditional postal company, but we transformed it pretty deeply. And do you th- do you think, you know, way earlier at the beginning of this broadcast, you said most people know you or think of you as a scientist. Uh-huh. Do you think your sort of scientist background gives you an advantage when you go to take on these responsibilities and you go to learn things and structure things and then put those things in, in, in place? Yes, I do. Tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think like, uh, so a lot of people, um, a lot of scientists typically we frame hypothesis, we we framed experimentation, right? You have a lot of hypotheses. You need to break it down into quantifiable hypothesis. Then you test with the real world, and then probably half of the hypotheses are wrong, and then you basically invalidated those, and then you test for those things that are right. I think when you take that to a startup world, I think the lean startup model is probably the same concept, except that it's done for the startup world. Yeah, I mean, look, being a scientist means you're most of the time you are wrong, right? You're building yeah. a hypothesis. You're in some cases you're actually trying to prove that you're wrong. That's right. So I tend to think of looking at the business with a more quantified way, but sometimes I also rely a lot on my intuition as well. I find that um, oftentimes I try to give in a lot to numbers, but sometimes gut feel is also very important. In, in being an entrepreneur because you have to take some risks sometimes like the numbers may say one thing sometimes right? <laughs> but you have the counterintuitive is that oh there's the one thing that I believe that no one believes so you have to test those assumptions so part of that the, 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 the enjoyable part of being an entrepreneur or being even working in a in a corporate job that I enjoy a lot is that you actually could you know test a lot of these things and sometimes you may even test your hunch as well this is the second context where you've used that word counterintuitive mm-hmm. right which i find really interesting right what do you think is the power of that counterintuitiveness that makes it so effective in finding out things that um that are going to work right because that in and of itself is counterintuitive right mm. what do you think i mean i have my I own ideas but i'm curious i think the I think a lot of businesses live on conventional wisdom. Yeah, fair enough. And I, and I think that conventional wisdom are mostly wrong. Wow. Like, I, I mean, that's I'll so concise. <laughs> yeah, it's very concise. And and, and let me explain. Okay? Please. So I, I have actually um, sort of write down a list of things that consultants, bankers, uh, some uh, corporate people tell me about businesses and for most of them i would say that they are wrong okay and i'm pretty sure that counterintuitively they don't understand the problem as much as someone who works on the problem do and you have a list of that you said i have a list of that so uh i'll I'll give you one example of one that is actually true that you can't dispute that and one of them is actually this is is actually debatable so the one that I couldn't dispute with a lot of people telling me is that market size matters. 
So, for example, if you want to build a billion-dollar company, whether you like it or not, it, the two biggest markets that you have to do it is China or U.S. May possibly be India at some point. Sure. Because of the uniformity of the market, because there is an economies of scale associated with that. I, I have been always trying to fight that, but as the years go by, even from startup entrepreneur going to the corporate world, you know, look and also learning about these markets, I find that that is one truth that I still couldn't find. Like counterintuitively, I've come to succumb to it. But then there are, there's one that I, I always hated a lot of people. A lot of people like to tell me this really silly uh, truth is hardware is commoditized. Hence, we should be all investing in software. And I think that that's wrong. So if that is true, then Huawei wouldn't be such a powerful company. <laughs> and the most valuable company in the world is Apple. Why? They are hardware companies because doing hardware is hard. Right? <laughs> well, the, I mean, you, to, to build... So, so to build really powerful software you don't need the same type so you and i can actually go back and forth on this a little bit yeah that's right i will i will make the case with you that actually um apple is a vertically integrated hardware software and services company I and, agree with you on that. and i know you would right i'm not saying you didn't believe that or you didn't know that um they do make most of their money from hardware but they could sell the same hardware that htc sells and htc is an amazing engineering company as is xiaomi but they'll never have the business that apple has in my mind yeah and, you, and i'm happy to be argued yeah. with no that's right because right. it's not vertically integrated right you need they needed the software to do it and remember they were chided for decades for saying that software and hardware need to be integrated. That was their big argument with Microsoft and with Dell on the other side and with Intel on the other side too. And in the end, they played a really long game and they won that game in the end by becoming one of the most profitable and valuable companies in the world. And you know, Huawei is actually a fascinating company in this respect because they're playing a really long game too. Yeah, right? that's right. Anyway, it's a really interesting point. And yeah, hardware yeah. is hard. That's why they call it hard <laughs> yeah no but the the fun part of it is like do i always ask people do you know why why huawei phones are becoming now number three in the world because huawei built carrier networks they have a special chip on their huawei phones that the cost will never be dropped that is the advantage of having hardware yeah so look and they've done it they've done something similar to apple too right they're completely yeah. integrated so what they do is and again you tell me if i have this wrong you can hear I'm excited about this, right? I actually mm. like this company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Huawei also builds the back-end technology that runs the carrier networks, right? So they, it, And I, I think all businesses have what I call a Trojan horse, for lack of a better term. Mm. They give the carriers a piece of technology, and, then they, and because they know that technology better than anybody else, they can then build technology that connects to it, in this case, a mobile phone, which is really just a super high-powered computer where you can make phone calls, that connects to it in a way that no other manufacturer can connect. And that's one of the things that makes Huawei so powerful, is that connectivity to their own other devices, right? And nobody else can match that, because even Cisco, which owned the network and the switching mechanisms in the United States for years, even though they had a product that they wanted to call the iPhone, they never really developed it, and Apple came in and did all that other stuff on top of it. Do you know what I mean? So it's so different, right, the way that Huawei works in relation to companies like HTC and Xiaomi. They had that secret thing already out there. That's right. And and I think that that's, that's why when I hear that everybody keeps telling me, you know, hardware is not important and just do software. I, I guess they're still living in the Microsoft world that is actually a decade ago. 
And if you yeah, look yeah. at these days, Google and Microsoft, what are they trying to do? Get they're into hardware. Hardware. That's right. <laughs> so sure, and, and not, and they're not doing it well. That's because it is really difficult, and it's not, it's not necessarily. Although it helps to have lots of monetary resources. Right, but I mean, Google has more money than necessary. Microsoft has more as well, and yet, building good hardware is really difficult. Interestingly, my wife is a hardware entrepreneur, good and we have this debate every day because I'm very software centric. <laughs> so, so she just she made, she she literally drilled it into me, and, and I think this is the best part of having this. What I, what I have, what you have caught on to me saying everything is counterintuitive. She will give me the most counterintuitive, you know, debates that I probably did, wouldn't have enjoyed and understood it better. Yeah. Well, this brings up another really important point about entrepreneurship and building businesses or building anything, and that means having good partners is really, really important. Yeah, I, I'm lucky because uh, my wife came from a family of entrepreneurs. So, well, good yeah. for you and good for her. I want to talk about something else you just brought up too, and that's market size, right? Because that is yeah. one of these things that people talk about. You know, you, you read about it in the news, you hear about it on TV. If the market's not so big, you're never going to all this noise, right? Yes. But let's just talk about, you know, Porsche as an automobile manufacturer, which has what, 3% or 4% of global um, automotive market share? That's right. Something like that. But before they were acquired by Volkswagen, they were the most profitable car company in the world. So market size may matter, but the size of the market that you're addressing actually may not matter as much as most people think. Remember, Apple still is not the largest phone manufacturer in the world, and yet they claim all the profits in the phone business, right, or in the mobile phone business. So mm -hmm. there is a little bit of counterintuitiveness there as well. I agree with that. Where, where it comes with regards to market size, when I look at it, it's really about products and services that are not brands. And I think the key to having the market size argument go away is to become a brand. Like what has happened to like LVMH, for example, which is, a com which is actually my favorite company, despite everybody thinks Apple is my favorite company. But LVMH is a company that has a lot of brands, right? And the brands, are they are not very big market share. They just only appeal probably to the top 5% of every market. But that's good enough for them. They are profitable. And I think that's interesting in its own way. But I think generally, maybe 50 to 60% of businesses in reality do rely on market sizing. I think you're right. You're very spot on on the fact that there, there may exist companies with smaller uh, market shares, but they are very profitable. But generally, if you look at statistics, probably this is where the quantifiable comes back. Comes back you will see that the the most of the bulk of it is still relying a lot on the market size. Well, but because, yeah. I can famously really to disagree because I, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot because um, it really tests my... Because I like to take a position towards something because it helps me to understand something better as well. Fair enough. And you give me a good time on that. I'm not done. I have one more question for you because, <laughs> because you brought up another one of my really favorite topics and that is brands. Yeah. Right. See, one of the things that I think that the current environment allows, right, and we can talk about things historically, but one of my thesis is that today there's no better day to start a new brand. And, and part of that is because of this sort of frictionless ability to distribute things and to get information out to more people than ever before. So I like to say, you know, in the old days when Coca-Cola was started in Atlanta, Georgia, 
you know, their market was originally regional, then it was super regional, and then national. But that national took a long time. And part of the problem was information flow, brand awareness, and building that brand. Mm-hmm. But today, I mean, think about and Xiaomi may be the perfect example of this. It, a, a brand no one had heard of, even HTC as well, that no one had heard of five years ago. And then, boom, it just explodes because your ability to distribute and get your name out. And that's simplifying. I know that. But mm-hmm. we don't have a ton of time. But the ability to build a brand like that instantaneously. So there's this concept of fast-moving consumer goods. I have a concept of fast-moving brand building. Right? It's FMBB. And I think it's actually possible to build a brand out of thin air today in a way that wasn't possible even five or six years ago. I agree with you. And if I would to tell you that for me, I don't see Analyze Asia as just being a podcast. Really, where I want to build it is to become a brand. Correct. I know yeah. the feeling. Yeah, yeah. So the, the the view I thought about when I started Analyze Asia, when I think about the way how I structure the logos, the new logos as, as well, I was thinking of building it towards becoming a brand. And my view of it is that I don't need to produce a lot. I just want to produce high quality conversations Correct. and long form. I don't need to touch everyone. I don't need a big audience. I just need the audience that matters to me. And I think this is something very difficult to do but it is actually much at the end of that whole exercise i find it actually much more fruitful because uh when i was designing the analyzation brand i also even thought about interviewing style and i was actually very inspired by charlie rose as an interviewer sure yeah and i think that's that's how you think about building brands at, from thin air right you look at all the brands out there and then you say like, okay what is the thing that would help to define that brand for you and i think that's that's that's, that's the interesting piece of that. I'm sure you're doing the same with ATP as well. Absolutely. And see, you you just did it, actually. And that, I love the fact that you just did that. Okay, because that means that something that we're doing is right, because you just called it ATP. Yeah. So it's working right. at some level. Yeah. It's just, but it's, it's true, though. That brand building exercise is hard work, too. And you have to have a strategy and a theory around it. And I've thought about that long and hard, and everything we do will not be right. But there's a process around building that thing and using sort of this frictionless ability that we have to distribute stuff globally. Like you said, having a market, having your people that listen to your podcast that are global, focusing on the U.S. first and then building out from there. I, th- I thought that was actually brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I think that at that point in time, um, there were very few Asia podcasts that we, that I actually could uh, work towards. So the I think something that I also learned in the last couple of years is instead of having competition with others, you should just focus the competition on yourself. Yeah, I mean, and I don't I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, I think, I think that's the best way to get you to a better state than constantly worry whether how many new podcasts is coming out. I think that doesn't help. The more I the better. What, yeah, the more the better, right? So I, so I adopted the abundance model that, okay, more podcasts means the, the tide is rising, everybody gains in the process. And and the beauty of podcasting, I think we discussed this privately, is that it actually ha- it's actually a women proposition for every podcast out there. Yeah. Yeah. Because, it's not so zero no, sum. No, yeah, not at all. Because we're all telling different stories, right? Yeah, and we also all have a different perspective. I mean, this is gonna start getting really meta, you know, podcasters talking about podcasting, but the way I look at this and it's multifaceted for sure is that there isn't one television channel. There isn't one news station. There isn't one movie theater. There isn't one movie producer. Like, there's plenty of places for content creation. 
And now that your audience is global, there's so much room to grow. And as a new medium, it's the best way to grow, I think. And like you said earlier, I can make a movie or I can do a podcast. And by doing a podcast, I can have direct connectivity with the people that are my audience. And you said it before, it's really important. I get feedback like you do from individuals who say, and someone said this to me recently, we did a podcast on being outside your comfort zone, right? And I got some feedback from people that said, you've just defined my entire life. I've lived my entire life outside of my comfort zone and not of my own choice. And that really resonated with me. And you know, I have friends that are professors too. And I say to them, if you can touch one kid, one student, then you can change a whole bunch of things. And if I just get one person to respond to me and say, that really resonated with me, I'm happy. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, I have, I'm pretty lucky. Uh, there was once I was uh, giving a keynote address on my work in the drone delivery in a conference in Hong Kong, and then someone walked up to me and asked me, um, are you the same guy who run the podcast? Right. And I was right. like, yeah. yeah. And so I said, yeah. And then, say, and then he said to me, why don't you talk about yourself? And I was like, okay. <laughs> why? If it's like, because you've done some things that are more interesting than, than some of the things you talk about. But I, I think of it differently. I think of it that um, there's just so many stories out there to tell. Right. And as long as I stick to that objective, I think it's actually a very enjoyable exercise. Okay. And I think actually that's the perfect way to end, Bernard. Because the truth is, it's our job in a way to disappear and let the people that we're interviewing become the focus. And I think that's what you've just said. And that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael, for getting me on the show. Thank you. I have a feeling this is not the last time you and I are going to talk to each other. <laughs> I'm happy to be on any time. Thanks, Bernard. Mm, thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.